week or two ago, um, someone shared a parody video with me that was comparing the Beatles, John Lennon, and Paul McCartney's different outlooks on Christmas based on their respective Christmas songs. It's a little edgy. I can't share it with you as your pastor, but what, we, what they compare is, uh, you know, John's, he's, his song is a moody lament for all that's wrong with the world with a little bit of hope sprinkled in, if you're thinking about the song. But for Paul, the mood is right, the spirit's up, and he's simply having a wonderful Christmas time, right? And it occurred to me, though, that together they've actually captured the spectrum of the Christmas experience. If we're honest, Christmas has a way, a unique way of shining its light on both the good and bad of the world and of life, of family, and just the reality that we, we face economically, relationally, even spiritually. Ideally, Christmas brings us together and it gives us a time that's set apart, a holy day during which generosity and blessing are at the forefront as we remember the gift of Jesus. But Christmas can also be really heavy. Maybe some of you are feeling that. It can bring loneliness and poverty to the forefront. It can cause us all to ache a little more about what we might call the gap between what we wish were true and what really is true. We feel a yawning disparity between society's comfortable and society's afflicted. Along with this maybe canyonous kind of strife and estrangement that exists between family members and maybe has for decades. Some of you probably feel that. There's also that spiritual gap. It's there too for those of us struggling at Advent and struggling at Christmas to embrace the wonder of a God who loved us enough to, uh, to come for us in poverty and obscurity and weakness. The God who came to feel a broken world, not just to heal it. And it makes sense that Christmas is this way, that this tension exists, because it exists in the actual story of the Incarnation, beginning with Mary and her story. So I just want to begin there, and I want to begin this fourth Sunday of Advent on Christmas Eve with an image of Mary that maybe you've never seen. I don't think I've shared this in about five years, so it's time to dust it off. Maybe you can see that, maybe you can't, but that's an image of, it's what some would call, Catholics would call, a Madonna and child. Do you see her on the far right? Some thinks that she is breastfeeding, um, but nonetheless, on the right, that's Mary with child. This fresco, it's actually on the wall of a Roman catacomb where early Christians uh, escaped persecution. It's specifically in the catacomb of Priscilla, which is on a road that leads from, from Rome to the Adriatic Sea, and it dates to the second century. And it is the earliest known image of Mary and Jesus, or as what I, what I mentioned, the Catholics would call a Madonna and child. Madonna is just Italian for my lady. If your name is Donna, it's probably about as literal a name as any lady could possibly have. It just means my lady. One of the things I came to realize about 10 years ago was that my views of Mary, compared to the 2,000-year history of the church, my views were weak and pretty uninspired, to be honest, inconsistent with Christian history. I certainly confessed belief in the virgin birth, and I saw great beauty in the story of Mary, but for the most part, she was just an important part of the narrative, more than a bit player, you know, an important character, as it were. To me, she was not deserving of too much emphasis, lest it take away from Jesus. 
And I think that's, let's be honest, it's a pretty typical and understandable Protestant viewpoint. But it's not entirely justifiable. It's probably a false choice. Talking about Mary, though, for us can often be a little touchy because of some Roman Catholic, some Eastern Orthodox tradition around her that we might call extra-biblical, particularly the idea that she had to be a perpetual virgin for her singular calling to be unparalleled and powerful. But regardless of our views on that, we, I think that we need to set her apart and we need to pay really close attention to her life and to her calling, just as the vast majority of the church has done for two millennia. And we're reminded of this when we look at an image that's almost 2,000 years old. So you can take that down, Bauer, if you want. Mary's response to the angel was nothing short of the complete surrender of her life to the will of God. In that sense, she is exemplary. In this sense, she is the mother of the Christian faith. She's modeling for us unparalleled willingness upon hearing God's will for her life, upon hearing what's going to be unpredictable, what she's going to have to live out. And Luke puts Mary forward as the flowering of all Israel's hopes, the one who receives God in her whole life on God's terms. And that's what it means to be a Christian, I think, isn't it? So we read here in verse 28, the angel Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And some manuscripts add, Blessed are you among women. Think about this. Out of all the women in all the world and throughout all time, God chose just one. Mary of Nazareth. No matter what we might try to add to the story about her qualities of character that are revealed a little bit later, the fact of the matter is this. God didn't choose her because she was good or holy. Gabriel doesn't give us any basis for God's favor, not her merits, not her strengths, or her religious sincerity. Unlikely as she was, she was God's sovereign choice. At the time, we, we know that she was betrothed to be married to Joseph, a descendant of David. And this would mean fulfilling the prophecies uh, that we heard today that the Messiah would be in the line of the shepherd king. But God could have chosen anyone, seriously, anyone in that rather large ancestral line. And yet he chose Mary. Certainly within a few years of her call, some land, let, let's just say maybe a landowning family would be available. With, who has a daughter. They've got some influence in Jerusalem, have a young daughter, they might fit the bill. At least Mary would have a more sanitary and well-supplied home. That would have made a lot more sense, wouldn't it? There certainly had to be a married woman already in David's line who was relatively stable by comparison. This would seem to be the better choice, an option. And yet God chose Mary of Nazareth. She was a peasant girl from a cow town, awaiting her wedding day to a rough-handed laborer. God entered into a situation bordering on desperate. Scandalous, even. Emmanuel, God with us, came to the poor as the poor to come to the world through the poor. He came to obscurity through obscurity to make himself known to all. That was his choice. And so Mary's first response to the angel 
is understandable. How can this be? She doesn't understand. She was greatly troubled just to be hearing some sort of divine announcement about her own small life. Overwhelming. Scary. Why would an angel come to her and on what basis could she be finding favor with God? Look around. All the voices of her circumstances and the artifacts of her surroundings, they are speaking to her obvious disqualification. The fact is, if you were poor and married today, it was generally believed that God felt a certain way about you. And this was the result. You or someone in your ancestry was to blame for your station. If unfavorable things happened, you were clearly out of favor with God. And though you might have a strong affection for God and a desire to please Him, Things were the way they were. You just generally lived with a sense that you were carrying some generational burden. You you were branded for something that someone did to put you in your familial circumstances, your economic circumstances as they were. And you just accepted them. So could God really even see me, much less use me? Yeah, the angel reassures her that she has chosen not just to do something great for God, but to be the mother of God of God. How could this be? Her conception by the Holy Spirit is nothing short of another act of creation ex nihilo, as we say, from seemingly nothing. God is acting. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her like the divine presence in Genesis 1, hovering over the deep and formless void. It's new creation. And so begins this pattern of new creation. And it begins with Mary. Heavenly life is going to be formed within an earthly life by God's doing, by God's bidding, and God's will. This was the beginning of the divine life of God himself coming to dwell with us and in us all. Mary wasn't perfect. She didn't have to be. Why? She was called. And so are you. And again, as the mother of the Messiah... Mary is the vessel for the fulfillment of Israel's prophecies that David's descendant will be enthroned for all eternity. But there's a really important wrinkle in this. Mary is not from the Davidic line. She's not David's descendant. Joseph is. But what do we know? Jesus is not born of. He's not conceived by Joseph. Why is this relevant? Because by being born into Joseph's family through Mary, Jesus will not only fulfill this prophecy uh, about belonging to the Davidic family, but he will actually extend that family and that promise to all people. Beyond bloodlines and beyond lineage to you and to me. Do you see it? Point being, the prophecy and the promise Like the love of God, they will extend beyond the boundaries. The categories will shatter, and Jesus will be known as the hope and the Savior of the whole world. And fittingly, Mary's calling wasn't merely about her womb. It was about her faith. What does she say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Where she was momentarily troubled... Right here, this expression of confidence spills out. Her whole body, her hopeful future, her impending marriage, her family's reputation in her village, and the shape of her once simple faith, maybe a little more manageable faith. This was all given completely over to God in a surprising moment. And what happens is radically changed forever. 
She is willing to be not just a task-performing servant of God, but her body, her life, and her home will be ground zero for heaven and earth to unite for all of history and all of humanity. Just think about it. What she ate from her meager resources, she ate for the Lord in her womb. She was nauseous in her first trimester for the Savior of the world. Her feet and back hurt. Her ankles were swollen to carry him. With aching hips, she tossed and turned and lost sleep for him. Her skin was stretched as Jesus grew in her womb, leaving scars of the incarnation on her body. And her blood, as we understand, was the blood of our Lord. And so all of this shapes the richness, the rich Christian tradition about Mary. She is the new Eve. She's the woman who, uh, who obeyed, as opposed to the woman who disobeyed and suffered the first agonizing childbirth under the curse, who was recovered in Mary. Recovered in, in, in Mary by God's grace. And in her willingness, in her love that flows out in faith, she receives that grace for all of us. Eve, in her accursed suffering, begat the murderer Cain. Mary, in her blessed suffering, brought forth the healer and the life giver. The pain and trial of Mary's pregnancy are not merely more evidence of the curse and its devastation. Her sacrifice is evidence that the whole world, every wrong move or wrong motive, every worry, and every womb is being set free from bondage to corruption. So in Mary, we see the gospel undiluted. We see that the poor and the empty are made rich and fulfilled. That every undeserving soul who could never conceive of being loved by the God of the universe has in Mary a stake in the ground of history. Mary tells us that God's purposes are fulfilled in humility. That he is glorified in the willingness that comes from having no presumed power on our own. In gospel terms, power corrupts, but humility empowers. She proclaims it with her own life. This is unthinkably good news for the poor. Both those with empty pockets, but also those who are spiritually devoid of hope. Those for whom humility is rarely a choice. It's just a circumstance and a reality. Through Mary, Jesus comes to us in our true poverty and our humility. The humility which we can hardly admit to ourselves. We surround ourselves with anything that will signify our worth, our accumulation, and our accolades. But the Lord of heaven comes to us in the obscurity that we so often despise. We don't want, to, we don't want obscurity. We want to be known. We want to be seen. But he comes to us in this obscurity, the lowliness that we are always trying to avoid and for which we are so often trying to compensate. Jesus comes to us through Mary in our disqualification. Which is what all of our hardest work amounts to before a perfect and holy God. We are disqualified. But he qualifies us. Because he loves us and he says what? He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Not because of what you have or who you are, 
but because I have chosen to live in you and through you. So now we, like Mary, can respond with confidence. We can respond with boldness, saying, Behold, we are your servants. Be it to us as you have spoken. Whatever you want, help us to embrace. We certainly can't trust that it will be easy, but we can trust that it will be for God to fulfill through us as his calling given to us. And I think it's worth highlighting here that Mary nor the other women in Luke's gospel are in the margins, too. This is an important thing to pay attention to. In Luke's gospel in particular, there seems to be an intentional, you may not see it, but there's this male-female reversal with the customary focus uh, in the narrative getting flipped from the man to the woman. Consider John the Baptist's parents. Elizabeth, in Luke's gospel, is seen as the person of true faith and full faith, while Zechariah is stricken dumb for his doubt. That's a radical move in the first century. When Jesus and his parents visit the temple in Luke 2, Simeon, though guided by the Spirit, awaiting for the consolation of Israel, Luke tells us, Simeon's content to just die having seen the arrival of the coming one. He's like, finally. But what does Anna do? Anna, this elderly, widowed prophetess, she goes out prophesying boldly with the message on her lips for all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. For Simeon, it lives here. For Anna, it lives out there. So Mary's calling in Luke's gospel, they should challenge us to see a divine and redemptive alternative. And you know what? Even an indictment of the cursed ways that women in society and even in the church have been overlooked and mistreated. No, Luke's emphasis doesn't, doesn't flatten these, the purposeful distinctions, the God-given distinctions between men and women, but rather it redeems them. Redeems them as the partnership for which the Lord has made us and called us. And what's recovered in Jesus is a holistic and diverse embodiment of his ministry to us, all of us, men and women, and for our world. Truth is, the gospel story, friends, if we will read it and accept it, it offers an alternative to every old way of being and every limited way of seeing it's nothing short of this. So in closing, just to say, it is no slight to, to Jesus, I don't think, to call Mary our lady and to see in a Madonna and child the miraculous and the beautiful and the redemptive and faithful example to every life who longs for Christ to be fully formed in us. That is our destiny and our calling. And as I've been reading and listening to the prophet Isaiah throughout Advent, a passage from chapter 26 stopped me in my tracks as I anticipated preaching this merry message on Christmas Eve. Let me read it to you from chapter 26, verse 17. Isaiah says, As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child, we writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. And the people of the world have not come to life. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. As Christmas brings this honest tension that we live with between joy and lament to the forefront, as it should, I think, Isaiah reminds us whose job it is to bring salvation to this world. He reminds us that so much of our effort, even all our writhing labor, amounts to giving birth only to wind. 
to a maddening futility. But here's the good news today. It's not ultimately up to us to save ourselves or the world. Mary gave birth to the one who saves, who has saved, who is saving and will save. And Isaiah saw it before he could understand it, and his words were pregnant with hope. May that be true of our words. May that be true of our whole lives this Christmas as we remember and celebrate what the Lord has done for us and for the world he loves. Lord, fill us with these words. Words of hope, fill us with ways of hope. Help us to trust in what you have done, you are doing, and will do. Help us to receive the life of Jesus fresh in our lives today and together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.